message, and uh, I want you to uh, hear these words from the Apostle Paul. But now, the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness, because in His forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness, that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No. But by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. This is the Word of God for the people of God. God. Amen. You may be seated. Good. All right. I um, got to tell you a story, and I want to tell you the conclusion of the story a little later on in, in the service. But there was a church that was having a meeting amongst its people over their newest member. You see, their newest member had a reputation, and it wasn't a good one. They had been known to be publicly displayed for all their misdeeds and sin and all the things they did wrong and splashed across the newspaper and this person was defiled in the community's eyes and they started to come to this church and on a particular Sunday they gave their heart to Christ. And after they'd been there a few weeks, they said we would like to begin to move up in church and be a part of leadership and things like that. We want to get involved And so they called a meeting. Now, not an official meeting, mind you, but a meeting of the minds. They all gathered together and started to talk about this person who wanted to be more prominent in the church and how it was destroying the name of the church. This person doing this, and if they move up in leadership, what kind of church would they think we are that we're allowing them to do things that are prominent after all the things they've done in their lives to soil their reputation. It's just going to ruin the the image of the church and the community. And they began to figure out what they could do. And one person had an idea and said, well, let's tell the pastor and maybe they can ask them to attend somewhere else. Because this just isn't good. So they called the pastor in and they had a lot of the upper levels of the church. It was a larger sized church in a larger community. And they began to explain the situation to the pastor. And the pastor listened carefully to their story of this person's sinfulness, wickedness, tarnished reputation, 
and what it could do to their church. And he responded. And I'll tell you what his response was in a few moments. So hang on to that story because I'm going to come back to it. But first of all, I want to know something. How's your faith doing today? Is it sagging? Is it tired looking? Does it need a, a recharge? A fresh start? Do you need a faith lift? So a faith lift basically means that you're going to get an injection of courage and belief in what you know is true about Christ and to further strengthen your convictions. That's what a faith lift is. And there's a reason why we often need those. Even when we're doing well, right around the corner, the enemy has been waiting to pounce. In First Peter chapter 5, it says your adversary the devil is roaming around like a lion seeking someone to devour, roaring, looking. The adversary is not friendly and does not like your relationship with God. He wants you to be in question about whether you belong to God, whether you have any effectiveness in His kingdom, whether you have any gifts that can help others, or whether you're even reliable for God to use. The enemy is always trying to tell you you don't have enough to do what God wants you to do, or you're not smart enough, not qualified enough, or you don't really believe the way you should. You'll hear voices of even well-meaning believers say, well, if you had enough faith, you would be healed. If you had enough faith, you'd be prosperous. If you had enough faith, your family would be just like um, the Cleaver family. I was trying to think what it was. The Cleaver family on Leave it to Beaver. All pretty and happy all the time. But you know what? We don't live in Fantasy Island. We live in a real world where there's sinfulness and brokenness and hurt and damaged emotions by even well-meaning friends and family. Even unwell-meaning friends and family can hurt us too because there are a lot of people who are vindictive, aren't there? Of course there are. But I want to tell you, when the enemy starts prowling around, here's what he's trying to whisper in your ear. It's not really real. What you believe doesn't really work. Have you ever seen really God do something? Is God truly real? And the same questions that He whispered into Eve's ear in the garden. Surely you won't die if you mess around with stuff that isn't of God. You'll be alright. You've done it before. You're not going to die this time. He's just messing with you. Sometimes the enemy will whisper there is no God and create all these doubts and questions inside of you. And yet, when the true faith begins to raise up in the face of adversity, it tells us we're saved by grace through faith, not something we've done. So, for the enemy, or for any of us, to assume that somebody is in or outside of God's family because of something they have done would be incorrect. Your works cannot save you, and your works cannot condemn you because you're already condemned under sin without grace. Now, are you going, wait, wait, what? I'm telling you, your works do not save you and they do not condemn you. You are already condemned because of sin. 
We just read in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Grace saves us, not what we do or don't do. What we do is sin. None of us are righteous, says Isaiah. No, not even one. Only one righteous was Jesus Christ, and they crucified Him for that. For sure. In Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, it says, For you are saved by grace through faith, the gift of God, lest anyone should boast not of works. And that is the truth. So, Romans 3.23 says we've all sinned. In other words, nobody walks a perfect, sinless life. But, I don't know. I haven't asked everybody this question yet. Is anybody here perfect? Raise your hand. I had to put mine down real quick. I was just showing you what to do. Alright. Is anybody in their whole life never sinned? Raise your hand. I'm not doing it. I'm just showing you what to do. I'm not telling you to go like this. And, and maybe some of you are going, oh, I'd raise it, but people would know I was lying. Or, I really believe I'm a pretty good person, so no, I don't think I have, but I'm not raising my hand because the Bible says I'm a sinner, so I must be, right? Uh, well, listen to this. You all may not like me after I say this, but you all just confessed to sin. You did. You didn't raise your hand. I didn't raise mine. Okay, we're all in it together. Amen. Okay? When none better, worse than another, we're all condemned under sin. Sin does that. And we're all there. So, now that we know it, let's, let's okay, who, who wants to be the first to share theirs? We'll, we'll start with the deepest, worst ones you got, and then we'll move up to the easier ones, because after the worst, everything's easy, right? Yeah, yeah. Kind of like the person in the story at the beginning where they had all this horrible reputation splashed across the newspapers and TV. Uh-huh. Okay, so maybe we don't want to do that in front of other people. We're not quite sure it's a safe place and nobody want to hear it anyway, right? Maybe. But what do you do with your sin? Do you hide it? Do you expose it? Tell others? Do you deny it? Like God in the Old Testament, wink at it, overlook it, say, you know, I just forget about that for a while. What about other people's sin? You can talk about that a little easier, can't you? I wonder in that story I told at the beginning, all these people talking about that person solely and their reputation, tarnishing him in the church, excuse me, the image of the church, if they had said, well, you know, it's easy to talk about them, but what about ourselves? Right? Isn't that the case? Isn't it true that we all struggle somewhere? That we aren't perfect in our walk with God? Not one of us reflects the full image of Jesus Christ. And yet, for some reason, we find it easier to talk about someone else's shortcomings than our own. Maybe it's because it keeps our attention away from our own. Maybe we're doing it that way for that reason. But no matter why, it's called denial of the fact that we all sin and I'm one of them. And so are you. So what do you do with it? What do you do with your sin? The not perfectness. You just go with, you know, everybody's that way, so I'm stuck. Nobody's perfect. We're all human. Or do you do something else? At our preacher's meeting at the beginning of this month, 
we uh, had a pastor who was retiring tell his story. And he said he couldn't remember exactly the quote, but the thing that got him close to God and changed his life was one sentence he read in a book. He said, I'm not sure if this is exactly how it was said, but this is how I remember it. He said, if your gospel about sin pushes you and others away from Jesus Christ, it's not the gospel of the Bible. You got the wrong one. The sin nature in you should draw you closer to Jesus where you are welcomed and safe. Shouldn't Jesus be the best place to take our sin? Shouldn't it be? And shouldn't church be the kind of place where we can come and find mercy, grace, and healing like Scripture says we find in God's presence? Isn't that the truth? But yet, we find in churches throughout the land that there are people who come and look at others and say, what are they doing here? But guess what? It's a hospital for sick people. And our sickness is a sinful nature. This is where we go to find healing. You're not going to find it out there. It's only found hope and healing in the name of Jesus Christ and the power of Him and Him alone is salvation. says Acts, by no other name shall we be saved but the name of Jesus Christ. Hmm. I've been thinking about this for a couple of weeks and I realize that there's three things that we can do with our sinfulness. I mean, let me try that again. There are three things we should do with it, not things that like deny it, hide it, keep doing it. Things to move forward through it into a better place. And the first one is repent and turn to the Lord. We're aware of it. We need to repent of it. It's obvious that we all in our lives somewhere need to say, Lord Jesus, I did this. I've been sinning or I have sinned like this. I repent. Help me live a better life for you. Forgive me. That's not a difficult statement to make. And I promise you, it's one you need to make more than once. To repent is a healthy choice. To not repent is to stay stuck and sick. You can stay stuck and sick if you want, but as you know, the theme that I have in my life is turning 180. Our website is turning180.com. No, that's not a plug. It's just the website. And it's called that because there was a point a few years ago when I realized that's all we need to do. That we're being pulled away from God and all we got to do to get back is make a 180 turn. It doesn't say we turn and go all the way. It just says we turn from where we're at to God. And usually that's a 180 degree turn. It doesn't mean we work and get over there. It just means I'm going away from God. God help me. The 180 turn is so important. The purpose of sin when we begin to realize that repentance is a natural part of all the church founding fathers, of all the saints that have gone before have made it a regular part of their prayer, of their prayer life, of their walk with God, And the most important thing about that is that it needs us to show that we still need Jesus. Some people ought to be saying amen to that. We still need Jesus just as much as when we thought we didn't know Him. That we didn't deserve Him. We don't need to have shame and guilt go, I'm not worthy to be here, but rather, shame and guilt, Jesus help me. Amen. 
The hardest part is to say, God, help me no matter where we are. The Holy Spirit's job is to convict us of sin and the devastation and harm on our lives. It's not so hard to figure that one out. In Isaiah, back in Isaiah where we did our call to worship, in the very first chapter, he says this. He says, wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. This is God speaking. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. I love that. Learn to do good. Why do we learn to do good? Because we don't know how of ourselves to do good. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Not revenge. Rebuke the oppressor. The enemy. Defend the fatherless. The orphans. Plead for the widow. The husbandless. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet. It is not... Maybe, maybe not. They are. They're very well seen. But they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If... If you are willing and obedient... Then you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured by the sword for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. All God is asking us to do today is say, this is who I am. I acknowledge myself before you and my need for you because I can't get to you without your grace. Your blood, Lord Jesus, saves me, not me. And I'm one who needs it. Second thing we have to do with sinfulness is speak its truth. I think I'm I'm not going to dumb this down, okay? I'm going to keep it on the level where I think you need to hear this. You have to speak about sinfulness with truth and love. Amen. Not just truth, oh I'm a sinner, that's truth. Love is I need grace. Uh-huh. And not just one or the other, and I'll tell you why. Because love without truth becomes codependent. It becomes soft. Now let me give you an example of that. If someone is falling away or doing something to harm themselves and you love them, you say, well, let me help you, but I'm not going to hold you accountable or tell you what you're doing to destroy your life. I'm just going to enable you by loving you because I feel love, but I'm not going to hold truth in front of you. Someone who's unfaithful, for example, and we say... You know, I love you. I'll be here and support you. Whatever you decide. I just love you. You know, and I'm here for you. I'm, I'm your best friend. I'll do whatever you need. You know, just let me know what you need. Or would you rather that someone say, you know, I love you and I just don't want to see you doing this to yourself. Because what you're doing isn't good and it's going to destroy a whole lot of lives in the process. What would you rather say? I love you. I'm here to support you. Sounds good. Sounds nice. It's codependent. Without the rest of it, The truth needs to be in your love. And a truth without love is very harsh. You know how that sounds? You need to change your life. Straighten up. Do what you need to do. How do you like that? How would you like to hear that from a church? Do what you need to do or get out. Love says, it's tough doing what you need to do. Let's help walk this together. 
Let's reason it out and find out what you're struggling with. And let's spend time learning a new way together. Because what you're doing is hurting yourself and others. Truth and love, they got to go together. If they don't, it's a problem. We have to learn the voice of truth and love. And we have to learn to speak it. I've heard a lot of people say to people who are either down and out or struggling, and the person didn't know them from anybody else in the world that was a stranger, and they would see them through a store or somewhere in public, and that person had on um, uh, four days of the same clothing and they smelled bad, or maybe they didn't have the money to afford a nice car or whatever. And they looked at the person and said, that person smells bad. That person needs to get a job or whatever. You know, you ever heard that? People begging on the side of the road, they need to get a job. Maybe they do. That's truth. But what's love say with it? Let me help you find one. Can you work? What brought you to this place? We just get so judgmental without ever seeking to love. And so what happens when we learn the voice of truth and love is when we see and hear the critical part of the truth is we must intermingle with the Holy Spirit, the love. They smell bad. I wonder if I could maybe offer to wash their clothes. Bring them home for a nice meal. Well, wait a minute. Now that that sounds insane. No. No, what sounds insane is calling yourself a Christian and criticizing people without offering to be a part of the solution rather than a part of the problem like everybody else is. Saying that there's something wrong with that person. Do you understand what I'm saying? Truth and love got to go together. If you speak one, you miss it. Oh, I'm going to give them $100. I know what they're going to do with it, but I'm going to give them $100. That's love. Truth and love is, not only am I going to do that, I'm going to find out what their needs are and see where they're at in their life. If their rent's due, if they're getting kicked out, they need a place to stay. Oh, wait a minute. You say, that's a little extreme, isn't it? Wouldn't you do that for someone who you love? A family member or a friend? Scripture says that we entertain strangers. And entertain doesn't mean dance and sing. It means to welcome them into our home. But love in our minds is not like that. We choose how far we go, whether we do this, whether we do that. And the reason why, because all we can see in the other is their sinfulness rather than their God-given ability to change. If we don't bring them to Jesus, they're stuck. If we don't love them with God's love, they won't be loved. Does that make sense? If your gospel and what you believe does not bring them to Jesus, you are not living out the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't know what you're living out, but it's not that. Somewhere God's going to put you in the path of someone who needs what you have. And you will have the ability and the resources to meet that. God will make sure those two things meet. That's learning the voice of love. But it's, it's contrary. I promise. Nobody else in the world talks like this to you or about stuff like this to you unless they love Jesus like I do. They're not going to talk to you like this. But I'm speaking to you the truth in love this morning. 
I love you and I want you to be a witness of Jesus Christ, of His love, regardless of how it feels or whether it feels safe. Because love and truth go together. If you feel unsafe, take someone with you. Meet in a public place, for goodness sake. But by all means, if God puts them in your path and you feel critical of them, love them. Amen. Oh. Well, it says in Scripture that we do our part to build up the body of Christ that growth and edification can happen, but how is someone going to grow and be edified if we just keep walking by telling them how bad they are? Right? It just doesn't work. In Ephesians, in our New Testament, Paul writes about this truth and love. And it talks about it in chapter 4. I want you to hear these verses. begins with verse 11. He says, Jesus gave some of us to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, teachers. And all the gifts that He's given, according to verse 12, are for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, until we all come to the unity of faith. The belief. And of the knowledge of the Son of God to become perfect or complete man to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Why? That we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But, speaking the truth in love may grow up. (laughs) Grow up is how you start speaking the truth in love to be mature. We're so baby Christians we think it's threatening and dangerous to love people like I've been talking about. That's immaturity in Christ when we think like that. And I'm har- it's a harsh statement, but it's a true statement. And I'm saying that in love. That we may grow up in all things into Him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. That passage is listed in the bulletin if you want to refer back to that later. But simply Paul is saying that we are here to build up, grow, and edify every person we come across into the body of Christ. Not to tell them how bad they are for not being it or how terrible they are because they've had a tough time or they've made bad choices, but rather to be the one who makes a difference. And according to the Old Testament, the third thing we do with sinfulness is we we start walking humbly with God, with Jesus. For what does the Lord require of you, O man, but to love justice, execute mercy, and walk humbly with your God? That is what our Old Testament says. In other words, I'm not better than you. I'm not worse than you. And people get stuck on both sides of that spectrum. Very few do we get right in the middle where there's no distinction. Seriously, we, we are. A lot of us uh, we look at our way we think. And we look at people we say, man, they're so much better than me. They know more about God. Or, and, you know, they have a better job. Or they, have, you know, not, their family listens to them. Or, or on the other side we go, you know, if they just raise their kids right, they wouldn't act like that. Mm-hmm. You know, if they would just, you know, buckle up, pull themselves up by their bootstraps. You know, well, if they had boots, you know, if they, you know, if they'd just clean up, you know, people would want to talk to them. And that's the better than and the worse than sides of this thing. But what it says in the middle is there's people all around me who have different circumstances, but they still need Jesus. 
And who am I to be to them? The critic? Or the one who thinks I'm better than them? Or the one who thinks I'm worse than them? Or the one who can be Jesus to them? Which one am I called to be? Sinfulness puts us on one side or the other. Walking humbly with God puts us in the middle. I'm not better than you. I'm not worse than you. I'm just trying to be one who's loved to you. All comparisons with others must stop in our walk with Jesus Christ. No more comparing. Once you stop doing that, your life will get a lot different. If you can stop. You may have to say, God, I repent of me comparing myself with other people in this world. Thinking you are better than another just justifies your own self. And criticizing them only destroys the witness of Christ in you. The only person you need to compare yourself to is Jesus Christ. And I promise you, you don't measure up. But you're not asked to either. You just come humbly before Him and say, Lord Jesus, shine through me because I don't want them to see me. I want them to see You. Amen. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Amen. And that's good news. That means everybody's on the same playing field. Level field. From the wealthy to the broken to the poor to the strong. They're all on the same playing field. We all need Jesus Christ. We are justified by His grace through that redemption in Jesus, says Romans four uh, 3, where we started. And God put Him forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness. I'm going to explain what that means in simple terms because that propitiation word, throw it out there and you go, yeah, I'm propitiated. Or am I being propitiated? What does that mean? You know, it throws us a curve. I'm going to share with you what that means by finishing that story I started with. There comes a time in our life when we realize that the scales are stacked against us. We said it when we said we're all sinful. The scales are stacked against us. We're weighed and found wanting in terms of holiness and righteousness. And we can't do anything about it. So we needed something to get the scales back balanced. The balancing act of that is the work of Christ on the cross to get us back into relationship with Him. That propitiation movement is what Jesus does on the cross to get us back to a place where we can walk with God and sin is out of the way. Now, let me clarify what I just said by saying sin is out of the way. It doesn't mean we stop sinning. It means it no longer can have power over your eternity. You'll have consequences for stuff. Sin always has consequences and wages. But, according to Scripture, the power of that sin over you spiritually has been defeated. Now we got all this residue of the flesh and the old sinful nature still trying to tell us that didn't happen. The propitiation act of Jesus Christ, another way to say that, is He took our place. So this person was on this council in front of this council and the pastor and the church has said, Pastor, what are we going to do? We think they ought to go to another church. 
They're going to ruin our reputation. We can't do ministry. They're going to think that, you know, we just accept anything here. Anybody? What do you say? And they're getting ready to vote. The pastor says, before you vote, let me tell you what's on trial. It's not this person. This person is not on trial today, though you think it is. It's sin in the blood of Jesus Christ. Which one do you think is stronger? The forgiveness that this person has entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ and washed with the blood of the Lamb, or the reputation and all the things before that, what's stronger in your mind? The blood of Christ or this person's sin? If you don't know the answer to that, sin is supposed to bring you to Jesus to say, put the blood all over me and help me walk a better life. To live it out for you, God. I don't know how to love like I'm supposed to because I think about all the people that I've neglected along the way because I didn't think that they were worthy or, or I didn't think I was worthy. And, and so I don't know how to love God. So show me. Humbly come before Him and say, God, I repent because I don't know how to be your believer because none of us do. All have gone astray. Scripture says that. Even the disciples all went astray. After they walked with Jesus for three years, they still went astray. You say, well, I would never do that. Okay, Peter. Yeah. Sure. You'd even die for him, wouldn't you? Until the heat got turned up on the fire, warmed by the trash can there, and then someone says, you, you, uh, you're with this person, and you, you say you believe you're going to die. Oh, well, you know, I mean, kind of know that, you know, well, what do you mean by believe? No, but this is what happens. When you fall in love with Jesus Christ, you say, I love him regardless of what you can do to me. What can man do to me? My God is bigger. And he promised me a home with him if this was destroyed and I'll have it one day anyway. The sooner than the sooner. Paul says for me to live as Christ, but die is gain. And so the pastor said, what's on trial? Here's the blood of Jesus Christ. If you think that the blood of Jesus Christ didn't cover that and can't cover this church, then I quit. Because this is not the kind of church I will pastor. But anybody and everybody who's welcome here, no matter their stain, God can make it white as snow. And you'll just have to clear up the reputation of the people's minds around you to love that person into fellowship. Amen. That's how you become a leader, by making tough choices and doing tough things. So it is with us. We have tough choices to make. Do we leave our sin with us or do we throw it in front of Jesus and say, this is it? This is what I've done. This is who I act like. This is what I am. Help me. Change me. Sinfulness has brought me to you. Grace says I can. And faith says you will. What do you say? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I know that... Uh, Sometimes it feels like life is short and days are long. And sometimes it feels like in a certain moment, if you would just act right now, our lives could be better, different. And this morning, Heavenly Father, the things in my life that have not been pleasing to You is I also did not raise my hand. I lay out now before Your 
throne before your altar and say, Lord Jesus, this is truly proof that I need you. So I repent and ask you to bless, heal and restore, and through me help heal, restore this church, each person here, Heavenly Father, to know that they are welcomed in your presence and in this place, that there's no room for someone to say I'm better or worse. Rather, the question is, what are they not doing here that aren't here? And what can I do to change that? Heavenly Father, help us to love like you love, because we're tired of seeing a world of people loving like you don't love, like they have learned from this world to love. Help us to be a part of your kingdom in greater and greater ways. Thank you for that. And thank you for your grace. In the name of Jesus Christ, Heavenly Father, if anyone here today has been convicted or challenged to come closer to you, I ask that they would have the courage today to say, Lord, help me. I need you. Amen.